What's up, bitches? Um, <clears throat> in today's show, I have a bunch of stuff on the shutdown. It's temporarily over. I'm not quite sure why everybody is super excited because I think we're going to go right back into another shutdown. <laughs> so I think the celebration is a little bit premature. I mean, it's not even like they did a one-year continuing resolution. They did like a, like a let's fund the government for a couple weeks type thing. So we could be right back in the same situation in no time. So I'm not quite sure why everybody's, like, doing cartwheels. But anyway, we have uh, Wilbur Ross commenting on the shutdown. He's the Secretary of Commerce, and he's going to show how massively out of touch he is. Um, we have Ted Cruz obliterated on the floor of the Senate. Tulsi Gabbard releases her first ad, and we're going to break that down. We have... Um, Richard Ojeda made a shocking announcement, and um, I don't want to ruin it now. Many of you probably already know what happened, but I'm not too happy about the announcement. i got to be honest with you. And then later on in the show, Joe Biden postures for 2020 and does it in the worst way imaginable. Elizabeth Warren proposes an awesome new policy that I have to break down for you. Hillary Clinton refuses to go away. Howard Schultz, oh, my goodness. So much to get to, so little time. Um, let's get started. We'll do it with Wilbur Ross, who reminds me of Droopy. <laughs> All right, where's my video on this? There it is. Okay, <clears throat> let me set this up for you real proper. So Wilbur Ross is the current Secretary of Commerce, and um, he's a billionaire. And, you know, Trump did this as he pretended to be uh, really populist and looking out for regular people. He had he put more billionaires and mega rich people in his administration than any administration ever. 
it's funny how he just kind of like got away with this, how he pretends like he's for regular people. And on the campaign trail, he even went after Goldman Sachs specifically because of contributions to Hillary. And then he appointed like three people from Goldman Sachs in his administration after bashing them endlessly on the campaign trail. Trump has this amazing ability to just instantly contradict himself, um, look like a total ass, but then he just kind of brushes it off and acts like nothing happened and the media doesn't cover it because they're fucking useless. Um, So here's billionaire Wilbur Ross, Secretary of Commerce, talking about this government shutdown, which, by the way, just temporarily was averted. It was the longest uh, semi-government shutdown in history. It went on for 35 days. You had uh, workers missing two paychecks in some instances. So absolutely devastating. I think the thing that made Trump finally break was um, the fact that the airports were getting fucked up. They had, they had to, like, ground a bunch of flights at LaGuardia because the air traffic controllers weren't there. I mean, it was a huge, huge clusterfuck, big problem. I mean, this isn't the way a first-world country should be acting. It's really crazy. Um, but the, averting the shutdown is just it's only for, like, a couple weeks. It's almost like they funded it, and then Trump's going to go give his narcissistic State of the Union, and then, we're, again, we're going to be right back in a government shutdown. So I don't know why there's a lot of premature celebration. I mean, it's great that all those workers are getting their pay now, but we're, we might be right back in the exact same situation in a couple weeks. So, I mean, it seems like still a massive clusterfuck. But anyway, here's Wilbur Ross. Um, he went on CNBC, and he's going to give a pretty interesting reaction to stories about government workers literally needing to go to food banks in order to eat and feed their kids. There are reports that there are some federal workers who are going to homeless shelters to get food. Well, I know they are, and I don't really quite understand why, because, as I mentioned before, the obligations that they would undertake, say a borrowing from a bank or a credit union, are, in effect, federally guaranteed. So the 30 days of pay that some people will be out there's no real reason why they shouldn't be able to get a loan against it. This dude is a billionaire. When he's presented with the information that, hey, some government workers need to go to homeless shelters in order to eat, he's like, whoa. He reminds me of Droopy. Remember the character Droopy? Like the dog with the long face? I don't really understand that. Yeah, you wouldn't. You're a billionaire. I don't understand why they can't just get food, go to the bank, and get a loan. Look at the country we live in now. That's the country we live in. Government officials, the Secretary of Commerce, is telling Americans who are employed full-time, well, just go get a loan so you can eat. What? And then when Trump was asked about this, uh, he was like, oh, what I think think Wilbur Ross was trying to say, tremendous guy, unbelievable guy, I have to tell you. What he was saying was, you know, if you go to the grocery store, a lot of these people know these people their entire lives, and they can work along. And then if you can't get it at this place, you go to another grocery store, and then you could work along. And then if you can't do that, you go to the bank and you get a loan, and you could work along. And He was making it seem like, well, anybody could just go to the grocery store and buy food and have no money. These guys don't know what it's like 
for regular people. Just so you know, 76% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. 76%. Half of workers in America make $30,000 a year or less. So, I mean, we have an economy that's a house of cards. And these guys are just utterly disconnected from how normal people live. And, I mean, to them, it's just like, what do you mean? I'm going to use, you know, the, the pain and suffering of regular people, of government workers, I'm going to use that as leverage to try to get my wall. And then when they're presented with the harsh realities of this, that's, that's their answer. That's this guy's answer. I don't understand. Why don't you just eat if you're hungry? You should just eat. I don't get it. Have your butler bring you some food. These guys should not be in these positions. Listen, the biggest divide that we have, and people will try to convince you up and down otherwise, is it's, it's class. That's the biggest divide. You have working people versus the elite. It, it's, you know, uh, oftentimes when we talk about this, it's moneyed interests versus the average Joe and Jane. It's uh, elitists versus populists. And this highlights that so well. You know, what we need is what used to be called a rainbow coalition. So working people of all backgrounds and ethnicities and religions and all that stuff coming together and understanding that the same policies that help the, the poor immigrant brown family, those are the same policies that help the middle class white family in Iowa. And the most devious and oldest trick in the book that's used by elites is you have, you try to divide people along racial lines and along other lines. Just find a way to make the middle-class white dude feel like the, the poor black guy is his enemy. And so divide and conquer. Make them fight amongst each other while you run out the back door with all the money and you keep rigging the rules in your favor. But now you see firsthand now, this is the reaction when you have these massively out-of-touch billionaires who don't belong in these, in these positions, man. They don't. They're not ready for this shit. They don't know what the fuck they're doing. They just coasted to these positions because they're of wealth and privilege and power. But, and this is their reaction when faced with uh, hardcore realities that regular people have to live through. I don't understand. I don't get it. They have to go to homeless shelters to eat. Why don't they just eat at home? It's crazy to me that this guy, Trump, actually managed to convince, convince many people in this country that he cared about the working class. On this one fact alone, just that that is utterly decimated. You put Wilbur Ross as Secretary of Commerce, and he doesn't understand what it's like for people to be food insecure. <laughs> and in this case, 100% because of the actions of the government. You know, it, they, didn't, they didn't have to do this. They didn't have to do the shutdown. They didn't have to, uh, you know, impact regular people in this negative way, but they chose to do it because they don't understand what it's like for regular folks in this country on a day-to-day -day basis. So you've been warned. Anybody who's like a, a middle-class person, poor person, working person, who sees now what these guys are about, there's no way you can support them.
I mean, it would be, we need to come up with a new word to describe how silly it is to be against your interests, your own interests, to this degree. Okay, next. We're going to talk about Colorado Senator Mike Bennett. So Colorado Senator Mike Bennett absolutely obliterated Ted Cruz on the floor of the Senate um, in a debate about the government shutdown. Uh, By the way, the shutdown is temporarily averted. I think they funded the government for a couple weeks. Um, I don't know why everybody's celebrating so much. I mean, I get it's wonderful that a lot of people are getting their pay now and they weren't getting it before. But my fear is we might be right back in a similar situation in a couple weeks. They didn't even do like a one-year continuing resolution. They did like a quick stopgap, you know, whatever it was, a couple weeks of funding. And that's not, that's not going to be, that's not going to work out in a couple weeks when we run out of funding again. So I don't, it's a lot of premature celebration out there. But anyway, here's um, Senator Mike Bennett ripping Ted Cruz for his, quote, crocodile tears. This is fun. Necessary to pass a clean bill paying the salaries of every man and woman in the Coast Guard is for the Democratic senators to withdraw their objection. Is that correct? That's correct. Thank you. Madam President. Senator from Colorado. Madam President, I seldom, um, as you know, uh, rise on this floor to contradict somebody on the other side. I've worked very hard over the years to work in a bipartisan way with the presiding officer with my Republican colleagues, but these crocodile tears that the senator from Texas is crying for first responders are too hard for me to take. They're too hard for me to take. Because when you, sh- when the senator from Texas shut this government down in 2013, my state was flooded. It was underwater. People were killed. People's houses were destroyed. Their small businesses were ruined forever. And because of the senator from Texas, this government was shut down for politics. Then he served to a second-place finish in the Iowa caucuses. But we're of no help to the first responders, to the teachers, to the students whose schools were closed with the federal government that was shut down because of the junior senator from Texas. Now, it's his business, not my business, why he supports a president who wants to erect a medieval barrier on the border of Texas, who wants to use eminent domain to build that wall, who wants to declare an unconstitutional emergency to build that wall, that's the business of the senator from Texas, I can assure you. Then in Colorado, if a president said he was going to use eminent domain to erect a barrier across the state of Colorado, across the Rocky Mountains of Colorado, he was going to steal the property 
of our farmers and ranchers to build his medieval wall, there wouldn't be an elected leader from our state that would support that idea. Which goes to my final point, how ludicrous it is that this government is shut down over a promise the President of the United States couldn't keep. And that America is not interested in having him keep. This idea that he was going to build a medieval wall across the southern border of Texas, take it from the farmers and ranchers that were there, and have the Mexicans pay for it, isn't true. That's why we're here. That was fun to see. I have uh, some advice for every Democratic senator. Smack around Ted Cruz, metaphorically, of course. Like, every time that dude gives a speech, makes some smug-ass comments on TV, whatever it might be, when Ted Cruz is out there in public, all of you need to go out there and rebut him and make fun of him and go after him and be fierce. Because that guy is terrible. <laughs> I, I was trying to be more descriptive there, but I just fell back on the, the most straightforward you know, uh, word. He's just terrible. He's a terrible person. His politics are horrendous. He's also so fake. God damn it. Like everything Mike Bennett is saying here is true. I mean, Ted Cruz did a non-filibuster filibuster to shut down the government in 2013. Why? Because he was trying to get Obamacare fully repealed. I need you to think about that. Shut down the government, doesn't care about the consequences, doesn't care about all the people that that hurts, doesn't care about the impacts on the economy, doesn't care about the impacts on government workers' pay. I'm Ted Cruz. I'm going to shut down the government. Because I think that Obamacare is an evil socialist government takeover of health care. But, Ted, like, the thing about Ted Cruz that annoys me more than anything is that he's the inception of stupid. It's not just, he doesn't just say stuff that's stupid because of, like, you know, it's one layer deep stupid. It's always, like, multiple layers deep of stupid. Like, it's, it's stupid. Uh, on its face, it's pretty stupid to shut down the government. Okay. Now, but beyond that, the reason he shuts it down is also stupid because uh, on the issue of health care. But then even one layer deeper than that, the thing that he's shutting the government down in regards to health care, his interpretation of what he's doing is not even accurate. Because he actually believes and argues like this is a government takeover of health care. Ted, I wish Obamacare was a government takeover of health care. I wish it was, you know, a single-payer system, the likes of the U.K., where they have tax money, so public money funding public institutions, because their system ranks objectively better than ours in every measurable way. And they save money, and they cover everybody. We spend, like, double what other developed countries pay, and we still have 29 million people uninsured, and we still have medical bankruptcies, and we, people, we have people dying because they don't have access to basic care. But So, like, he's shutting it down, and it's based on a total misrepresentation and misinterpretation or lie about what Obamacare even is. Ted, you should be celebrating Obamacare. Why? Because it's, it's a, a type of health care reform 
that coincides perfectly with the ideology that you say you have. Ted Cruz claims up and oh my God, I love free market capitalism. I love, you know, unfettered laissez-faire, you know, economics. Listen, dude, the Heritage Foundation originally came up with the individual mandate style system. That's what Obama is based on, an individual mandate. So what that means is the government says, hey, listen, everybody in the country needs to have health care, needs to have health insurance. So if you can't afford it and you're below the poverty line, okay, you get Medicaid. We'll do a Medicaid expansion. Fair enough. But if you're, if you're middle class and you don't, you don't uh, you know, apply for Medicaid, you can't get Medicaid because you're above that income line, well, then we're going to mandate by law you have to go to the private market and buy health insurance. This is why the, the, the Heritage Foundation said this is our response to a Medicare for all system, to a single-payer system, which is supposed to be the Democratic position, supposed to be the left position. And then that's why Newt Gingrich and Chuck Grassley and a bunch of these Republicans supported the individual mandate system. That's why Mitt Romney got it implemented in Massachusetts, because this was the right-wing idea. Now, when Obama became incredibly centrist and did the original Republican idea, the Republicans moved further right off a fucking cliff where their answer on health care reform is, do nothing, Either that, like we already have the best system in the world, even though that's factually incorrect, that became their position. Or best case scenario, they came up with the idea of, incredibly silly idea, uh, get rid of the lines around the states for health insurance companies so that you um, incentivize competition and drive prices down. That became their answer. Now, what's the reality? The whole point of getting rid of the lines around the states to incentivize competition, well, would end up happening in the healthcare market is the same thing that happens in other markets when you do that. You'd have all the health insurance companies move to the lowest tax states and, and make more profit. They'd all park their ass in Delaware or someplace like that. And then it, it's just a tax avoidance scheme. That's what that whole plan is based on. So in other words, the Republican idea to reform healthcare now is just, let's make the health insurance companies more money. Full stop. That's it. Got nothing to do with improving your health care. Got nothing to do with helping the 29 million people that don't have any health insurance. Got nothing to do with uh, reducing costs. It wouldn't actually do that. So Ted Cruz, I mean, to shut down the government over health care because you feel like too many people are getting health care with, with Obamacare, because even though I don't, I'm not a fan of Obamacare, it was definitely a step in the right direction versus what we had. Millions more people got um, health insurance. And you had millions of people who were now millions more people who were covered who weren't covered before. Again, not my ideal reform, but better than nothing. But he was so outraged by Obamacare that he tried to shut down the fucking government to say we need to, we need to repeal Obamacare. And his argument was because Obamacare is the government takeover of health care, which it's just not. So you mix all, all of the wrongness in with the fact that he's just smug and smarmy and fake and I'm Ted Cruz. I'm going to pretend like I'm for the everyman when every single fucking policy I'm in favor of is against the everyman. I hate this fucker, man. I hate him. You want to know how he's like one of the most disingenuous politicians in the country? There were some Democrats going back like four years who there was, there's a lot of grassroots pre- pressure on this issue of money in politics. So a bunch of Democrats were saying, okay, we need to do something on the issue of money in politics. We need to do something on campaign finance reform. Now, the Democrats are not great on this issue because the real answer when it comes to money in politics is honestly a constitutional amendment to get money out of politics because any law you pass that does campaign finance reform 
and addresses money in politics, it, it's basically overridden by the Supreme Court's interpretation of the Constitution, which says, you know, people have a right to spend on political campaigns. They've interpreted it as, oh, that's free speech, even though it's not. But they say that our interpretation of free speech is that you get to buy politicians and bribe them. That's effectively the ruling. So Ted Cruz, the argument that he made when some Democrats wanted to do minor reforms on the issue of money in politics, minor reforms, like, hey, let's have some limits on the amount of bribery that can be done. Let's have some transparency so we know exactly who's buying the politicians. Minor tweaks around the edges on, um, you know, open bribery in our system. Just brazen corruption. What was Ted Cruz's response to that? He went around the country and gave speeches, and he was arguing, the Democrats are in favor of repealing the First Amendment. Ted, what? What? I mean, what a... In, obviously bad faith interpretation of what we're talking about here. The argument from people on the left is not, hey, we're against first, the First Amendment and free speech. The argument from the left is, that is not free speech. Money does not equal speech. If money equals speech, what, it should be legal to do murder for hire. Why? Because you're not actually doing murder for hire. You're just using speech to give to somebody to tell that person, hey, man, I'm okay with murder. You're allowed to say, I'm okay with murder. That's free speech in this country. Hey, I think murder maybe should be legal. Nobody's going to come arrest me because it's legal to say that. So if money equals speech, you can give money to a hitman and say, uh, go murder that person for me. But it's okay, don't worry. This is totally legal because money doesn't act. I'm not actually giving, you know, I'm not actually buying a service here. I'm just expressing with speech that I think murder is okay. So, but he misrepresents it on purpose and lies and goes out there and says, anybody who's in favor of any kind of campaign finance reform, you are against the First Amendment. It's not that you're against corruption. It's not that you're against bribery. It's that you hate free speech. That's how he frames it. You want to know why? Because he's a fucking liar, piece of shit, asshole, who himself is massively corrupt. So he uses bad faith arguments on purpose. And the fact that anybody can look at Ted Cruz in today's day and age and go, oh, I'm sure that guy looks like a straight shooter. What? It's honestly embarrassing. It's honestly embarrassing. Like, it, when it comes to even somebody like Donald Trump, who I massively despise and disagree with and all that stuff, Donald Trump at least put on an act when it came to, like, being a pseudo-populist, you know? At least he kind of acted like, oh, I'm for the little guy. Ted Cruz, it's just everything about him is fucking elitist and out of touch and smug, and he's a liar. And anybody who thinks that guy's looking out for them, I'm here to tell you it's just not true. He literally shut down the government to try to get health care taken away from people at a time when the government needed to be open because we had flooding, as Mike Bennett is laying out there. We had flooding and people needed FEMA relief. And he was like, I don't care. I'm going to shut down the government to try to take health care away from people. And then he turns around now and cries his crocodile tears and acts like, ah, I, it's so wrong to shut down the government. And he's blaming Democrats, by the way. And it's not even true you blame Democrats. You should blame Trump and blame the Republicans. But that, that's the thing. Everything that comes out of Ted Cruz's mouth is a fucking lie. So I'm happy Mike Bennett ripped him. I hope every Democrat uh, takes advice from this and they do the same. Okay, next. Next, 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 next. Tulsi Gabbard. Let's 
play her ad for you. So Tulsi Gabbard released one of her first ads of 2020. Let's take a look at that, and then I'll break it down. Like so many of you, it is painful and disheartening to see how much divisiveness is being fomented by those who wish to tear us apart. We have people in positions of power who are not thinking about the well-being of the people and our planet. Where is that conversation about the needs of our people? Where is the conversation about peace? Every time we launch these interventionist regime change wars, it is not only our veterans who pay the price for that. Every single one of us pays the price. We have spent trillions of your taxpayer dollars to pay for these wars, taking those dollars away from our communities and our people who need them right here at home. We are the ones who have the power to make change. It takes every single one of our hands, our hearts, and our voices by this love and aloha to take on those forces and those obstacles that can seem too great to overcome. There is no force more powerful than love. This is how we come together as Americans. This is why we fight for the future that we hope will be so much brighter for those that we care about, for the country that we love. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. Now compare that with Kamala Harris's launch video. We played that for you the other day. Go take a look at the segment I did announcing Kamala Harris's launch for 2020. Um, night and day. Night and day. Kamala Harris, is, her thing is just, they almost become that parody of a corporate Democrat that, I, you know, I've been doing on this show for years now of, Tom Perez was the, the origin of it, but... I'm for good things and against bad things, and let me know if you're for good things and against bad things, too. And I think we should lead with our values, because values are good and values are positive. Like, they say these just nonsense, flowery phrases and, and platitudes and cliches, and with Kamala Harris, it was like, unity, democracy, these aren't just words. Actually, in the list she gave off, it was just words because she didn't tie any of it to policies to say, hey, here's, here's how this is going to relate to your life and how I'm going to improve it, and here's my comprehensive policy agenda. Now, listen, you could say, hey, Kyle, it's just the launch video. She, maybe she doesn't need to run through her fucking platform in the launch video. That's a fair enough point. But here's my rule. Ready? Here goes. Name at least one policy. <laughs> just one. Just throw one at us. Just throw one at us for shits and giggles, you know? Like, um... Uh, Elizabeth Warren, I broke down her launch ad as well. She she spoke a lot. She was talking about policy without specifically mentioning policy. Basically, what I said about her ad was it's as good of an ad as you can possibly get without bringing up policy. Because it was like, it was very populist. It was uh, hinting at ideas that would help the American people, but she didn't actually just say, like, Medicare for all, living wage, free college. So for Elizabeth Warren, it's like, okay, she gets a grade that's, I forgot what I gave her. What did I give her? A C, B, something like that? It was something like that. Kamala Harris gets, like, an F. Uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, I'm not sure I even saw a launch video for her. I just know that she's announced she's running for president. Um, 
she may have had a launch video. I don't remember. But so far, Tulsi's is, is the best. Because very clearly, what does she bring up? Now, there are some things, oh, it's all about love and aloha and blah, blah, blah. The thing that I like is that she literally said there, interventionist regime change wars. When was the last time you heard any politician use those words? Interventionist regime change wars. So in other words, for the first time in a long time, somebody using, describing a pejorative for something that actually is a pejorative. You know, usually, what do they say about the non-interventionists? What word do they use for them? Isolationist. So that's the, the pejorative, the negative connotation they put on something that's positive. Whenever somebody says, hey, maybe we shouldn't do offensive wars against countries that don't attack us, um, they're like, oh, I guess you're an isolationist. Now, why do they use that? They use that to smear people because it sounds like it has other, um, you know, it sounds like there's other aspects to it as well, like trade isolationism and like totally detaching from the world in a way that's unhealthy. Like they try to make it seem like something that's really negative and really bad. And, but in reality, all that, whenever somebody accuses somebody of being an isolationist, the reality is these people are not like pacifists that would say, hey, if somebody attacks us, they should just, we should just let them attack us. No, these are people who say, whenever we do war, hey, maybe it should be for defensive purposes. Maybe it should be to protect our country, you know, if it's in a situation like that. So um, for her to actually bring up interventionist regime change wars is honestly a breath of fresh air because you don't hear that often. Even from somebody like Bernie, who I think is generally correct on, on most of the foreign policy issues, he doesn't put it front and center. And that's something I think Tulsi Gabbard is going to do. And if you notice something, the smears that, that are coming at her from the establishment media, they go after her on issues that she's not wrong about. Like, it's one thing if they were to go after her on issues where, you know, I think she's actually wrong about those issues. Like, for example, um, the comments she made about torture, which I think are damn near unforgivable. I mean, I, I, that really broke my heart seeing that because I was like, oh, God damn it, Tulsi, why would you say such a thing? Um, but notice they haven't said a goddamn word about that. N nobody in the mainstream media has ever said anything about Tulsi Gabbard's thing on torture is questionable. Why? Because they kind of all agree with it. Okay, they kind of are all wrong on that issue. Uh, but when it comes to, what do they go after the strongest on? Syria. Why? Because she met with Bashar Assad. Listen to her when she says why she went. She's like, I don't know, I want to try to make it so we don't have war. And I think that's a good thing. So she's getting smeared in the same way that somebody would have gotten smeared if in 2002 they went and they saw Saddam. By the way, somebody tweeted me and made a good point. You know who did that in 2002? George Galloway. Guess what? George Galloway was viciously smeared for years afterwards because they, oh, my Saddam sympathizer. That's what she, as if, like, you agree with dictators and criminals when they do crimes as opposed to simply you taking the position of, hey, they may be bad guys, but that doesn't mean we should go in there and overthrow them. Because history demonstrates very clearly when we get involved and when we do that, the backlash, the fallout is worse. There's a literal word for it. The deep state calls it blowback. Why? Because it's, it's a thing that exists and we needed a term for it. Hey, when we overthrow uh, governments willy-nilly, turns out that usually what fills the vacuum is worse. And it's not our position to do it anyway because we violate international law in the process. So here you have a veteran who's been to war who says, it's a bad idea, we shouldn't be doing these interventionist regime change wars, and I'm going to do anything to try to stop them from now on. And she's smeared, as if she's the crazy person. No, the real crazy people, it's the neocon establishment, which defaults to war is always awesome. Now you have neocons in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. They don't go away. They, they latch on like a, leash, like a leech, and they don't go away. 
and they make the consensus. I mean, go watch MSNBC. The default position on MSNBC is, why would we get out of Syria? Oh, my God, we need to stay in Syria, obviously. What? It's an illegal war offensive against a country that didn't attack us. It's against international law. It's against U.S. law. Congress didn't approve it. What are you talking about? We want to fight on both sides of the war? That's the definition of a quagmire, and that's what we're doing. So it's a breath of fresh air to see a candidate put foreign policy front and center and not backtrack at all and say, no, I'm against these interventionist regime change wars, and if you disagree with me, you're wrong, and I'm going to argue against your position. So good for her. Um, And I also like how, I don't know if you caught it, so she spoke about the interventionist regime change wars, and then she immediately went to, Listen, we need to basically use that money to invest here at home. What are we doing? Brilliant. It's always been wonderful politics, but also wonderful policy to say, hey, I'm against, uh, you know, doing offensive wars and then nation building overseas. Why don't we uh, take all that money and invest here at home? Our infrastructure gets a grade of D+. We have 76% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck. Flint, Michigan doesn't have clean water. The list goes on and on of all the things we can do to upgrade this country. I mean, you fly into some of our airports, it's not pretty. Other countries have much nicer airports. Why are we not building our own country here at home? So she's using that's very populist rhetoric, and that's very important policy and good politics. So I think that um, even though the media is going to stop at nothing to try to take Tulsi down, and they despise her, make no mistake about it, um, I think she's going to do better than a lot of people think. I do. Because... When people actually hear her, they're going to go, oh, that's actually perfectly reasonable. Instead of listening to what other, pe- other people in the establishment media say about her. Because, again, they're going to try to take her down. But when people actually hear her, they'll go, why? I don't understand. Why do people, why are they, you know, going after her relentlessly? And here's how you know they're massively biased, okay? I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> oh, I, I remember now. CNN did, um, you know, a breakdown, little bios of all the candidates. And when it came to Kamala Harris, they said, oh, would be historic, historic victory. Why? Black woman. Minority woman. And they paint like, oh, my God, so positive minority woman. Oh, yeah. For Tulsi Gabbard, by the way, Hindu and female, that would be two firsts. They don't even say, they, they, they put in her thing um, anti-gay or anti-gay past, which to be fair is true. In the past she was anti-gay, but they weren't, you know, they didn't put like Kamala Harris supported three strikes laws in fucking in California as attorney general, supported civil asset forfeiture, fought to keep an innocent man locked up as she did on a technicality, by the way, because he was late with some paperwork. They didn't put any of that in Kamala Harris's thing. But in Tulsi Gabbard's, oh, okay, dig up whatever you can on her past, and we'll put that in there. And ignore the fact that it, it would be historic. Hey, listen, you are the, you're the people who want to play identity politics games. I don't, I don't believe in identity politics, and I've said, it, I've said that repeatedly. But you guys do, and mainstream media talks about it all the time. But see how they cynically weaponize it? Because they say for Kamala Harris, historic, because the establishment would love her, and she's also a person of color and a woman. The establishment doesn't like Tulsi Gabbard, so no more, not historic, even though she's person of color and a woman. Such bullshit. Um, it really is, and it really annoys me. There are legitimate criticisms of Tulsi, and I've laid them out, and I'll continue to do, to do it moving forward as the, as the election season moves on. But what I won't do is aid and abet the bullshit attacks. That's for sure. So um, listen, everybody knows I don't 
I'm very upfront and direct with my opinions on this show. Everybody knows that it slash when, and it really is a when, Bernie Sanders jumps in the race, he gets my support. But having said that, I do my best to uh, tell it like I see it, and that doesn't mean that I'm going to like bend over backwards to be dickish to every other candidate, even if they say something good. I'll try to be as fair as I can across the board with every single candidate, tell you where I think they're right, tell you where I think that wrong, where they're wrong, even though, again, I personally, I'm a Bernie Sanders guy, and if he hops in the race, which he's going to, he gets my vote. Okay, next. <laughs> Bitch. Bitch. Let's go to Davos, please. We have some incredibly smug video to share with you here. This is from Davos. Yeah. Is it Davos or Davos? Davos? I think it's Davos or Davos, whatever. Let me give you the context here. So, so for those of you who don't know, and I don't blame you if you don't know, because you're not mega wealthy pricks, um, Davos is the following. I'm giving you this from the always trusty Wikipedia. The World Economic Forum, based in Cologne, uh, Geneva, Switzerland, was founded in 1971 as a not-for-profit organization. It gained formal status in January 2015 under the Swiss Host State Act, confirming the role of the forum as an international institution for public-private cooperation. Blah, 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 blah. Let's get to the important part. The forum's mission is cited as committed to improving the state of the world by engaging in business, political, academic, and other leaders of society to shape global, regional, and industry agendas. The WEF is best known for its annual meeting at the end of January in Davos, a mountain resort in Grambuden, I don't know how to pronounce that, in the Eastern Alps region of Switzerland. The meeting brings together some 2,500 top business leaders, international political leaders, economists, celebrities, and journalists for up to four days to discuss the most pressing issues facing the world. So, okay, in layman's terms, this is a gathering of mostly massively wealthy elites. That's what this is. That's what Davos is. Yes. <laughs> yes, I will be doing that smug voice for many portions of the rest of this clip, so if you don't like it, X out now. Um, but with that being said, Look at what they uh, were speaking about on one of the panels, and then we'll break it down. There are growing calls to address these inequalities, particularly the wage inequality, with more taxes. In particular, in the United States, there's been a call by Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez to tax uh, people earning over $10 million at a 70% tax rate. The current top rate in the United States is 37%. Uh, Michael Dell, do you support this? Wow. <laughs> 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 well, look, I mean, uh, you know, my wife and I set up a foundation uh, about 20 years ago, and we would have contributed quite a bit more than a 70% tax rate on my income, on my annual income. 
and I feel much more comfortable with our ability as a private foundation to allocate those funds than I do giving them to the government. All right. <laughs> so, no, I'm, I'm not supportive of that. Well, Keith. And I don't think it would help the growth of the U.S. economy. Oh, that's interesting. And can you say a little bit more about why? Why you don't think it would? Well, name a country where that's worked ever. United States. <laughs> Briefly, in the 80s. No, no, no. For, from about the 1930s through about the 1960s, the tax rate averaged about 70%. Um, at times, it was up as high as 95%. And those were actually pretty good years for growth. So I, I don't have a strong opinion on that proposal. A lot of the devil is in the details. Um, but I think it's, uh, there's actually a lot of economics that suggests that it's not necessarily going to hurt growth. That was glorious. Okay, that last guy you saw there, he's a professor, so he's in a room with people who are mostly massively wealthy, and he's the one who's the most educated on the issue, and he also probably happens to be one of the poorest people in the room, and he's like, okay, you guys are just wrong. Know your history. The fucking moderator doesn't even know what the fuck she's talking about. She asked the question, and she doesn't know anything about high uh, marginal taxes and the history of that in the United States specifically. And Michael Dell was like, name a place where this has worked anywhere, ever. Um, Norway, Denmark, Iceland, Sweden. (laughs) You're you're like in one of the countries there. Actually, no, I don't know. Does Switzerland have high marginal taxes? I'm actually not sure if Switzerland does. But in the general vicinity of where you are at that moment, um, it's working. And, you know, hey, the professor brought up as well, the United States of America. The moderator's like, oh, that's right, in the 1980s. No, it wasn't in the 1980s. In the 1980s, when Reagan came in, he slashed that top rate down to 28%. So what are you talking? They don't know. They don't fucking know. But the thing that drives me crazy is that, like, as these massively rich people who think they know everything are, like, casually giving their opinions as if it's gospel, they're the most uneducated people on the fucking topic. God, it's so infuriating. And that's the thing. They think, like, by divine right, they should be able to craft policy and govern. And it's like, just because you have a lot of fucking money doesn't mean dick. That doesn't mean anything. You know who else is rich? Paris Hilton. Should, should she be Secretary of Labor? No. God damn it, man. Oh, they're so fucking insufferable. It, and again, I, I love pointing out the fact that the guy who's like the poorest guy in the room who's a professor, so he's not necessarily part of the elite that most of those other people there are, he's like, um, it did work in the United States, and here are the years, and that was actually during what was called the golden age of economic expansion in the U.S. We had, um, you know, manufacturing that was the envy of the world. And also, by the way, at the same time, you know what else we had? Highest unionization rates we ever had in U.S. history. It's a fact of reality that when you have strong unions and many people in unions, you have a stronger middle class. So these guys, they just don't know. They don't know that supply-side economics is garbage and demand-side economics makes sense. And then the other point is they haven't even, like, thought about it. Because even, in, even if you don't look at the history of it, which is one thing, and you should do that, even when you think about it, listen, if you have high marginal taxes, so let's say you, tomorrow we had a high marginal tax rate. We put, let's say we... Uh, implemented Ocasio-Cortez's idea of 70% top marginal tax rate for all income above $10 million a year. That doesn't include loopholes and deductions and all that stuff, but 
Um, when you have high marginal tax rates on individuals, if you're a rich person and you have four businesses, okay, what are you then going to do? Hey, if I take this money out of my company and I take it as income, I'm going to get taxed at 70% for my top marginal rate for every dollar above $10 million. Hey, maybe I should just leave my money in my business. Maybe I should just take that money and expand my business because if I expand my business, I'm going to get to keep more of that money than if I take it as income. And what's going to be the effect of leaving that money in your business and expanding your business? It's going to be positive for the economy. You're going to be growing your business. And if there's anything that the capitalists are obsessed with, oh, God, well, all we care about is growth. We love growth, yes. Well, there you go. High top marginal tax rates on individuals incentivizes growth. And all you have to do is think about it for a second. Because then people are going to say, I don't want to take the money out because I'll be taxed higher. I'll just leave it in my business and then the businesses will grow. And this is one of the things, I'm sure, that fed into the dynamic of why we had a wonderful economy in the golden age of economic expansion from you know, the 1940s until the uh, late 1970s. So they don't know anything. God damn it, they don't know anything. Oh, God. Uh, like in their minds, they think like, we have to keep from the unwashed masses. We have to keep them away from the levers of, they laughed, man. They laughed at AOC's idea, even though she's the one with all the evidence and all the history backing her position. They laughed. Like, don't you get it, guys? It's not that the problem is like the average Joe and Jane unwashed masses. The problem is actually the exact opposite. The problem is that this ruling class of elites and moneyed interests bought many respective governments, definitely bought the U.S. government, and corporate interests and billionaires bought the U.S. government, and they rigged the rules against regular people and for themselves. And they've been fleecing people for decade after decade after decade after decade. And now when you get politicians who, who come out, and they're not even like super radical. They're just like proposing internationally moderate positions, social democratic positions. You scoff at them and you laugh at them. And you're the ones who are ultimately embarrassing yourselves. You're the ones who are massively ignorant. You're the ones who are in your fucking ivory towers, or what is it, towers or ivory castles, what's the phrase, whatever it is. You're the ones who are, you know, looking down your nose at everybody and being condescending as if you have the answer simply because you're rich. And um, you ain't fooling anybody, man. There's a global populist backlash against you clowns. And sometimes it manifests in gross anti-immigrant ways and in a right-wing way, and sometimes it manifests in a way that's that makes sense, like a social democratic, democratic socialist kind of way where people want to make sure that they get better economic security by reforming the system. And I'm extremely here for that because you guys don't know what the fuck you're talking about, but as you don't know what the fuck you're talking about, you're massively arrogant and you're clueless and we're laughing at you. I know you think you're laughing at us and <laughs> the unwashed peasants are trying to take the reins of power, please. Guess what? The unwashed peasants having their will implemented, there's a term for that. It's called democracy, and I support it. How about you? Okay, let me do one more and then we'll take a break. Richard Ojeda, 
made a shocking announcement a couple days ago about his presidential campaign. He posted this on the Young Turks uh, YouTube channel. Take a look. Hey, everybody. You know, when I was a kid in grade school, uh, my teachers always said that anyone can grow up and become president. And uh, unfortunately, what I'm starting to realize is that unless you have wealth, influence, and power, it, it's, it's not going to happen. Uh, unfortunately, we've made the decision that we're going to end this presidential campaign because I can't see continuing to ask people to donate uh, when I can't get no... Uh, I can't get no FaceTime. Uh, just I don't want to see people, you know, send money to a campaign that's probably not going to get off the ground. So I just want each and every one of you all to know that uh, my fight is not over. I'm going to continue being a voice, and uh, I'm 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 not done. I'm not done. I may not uh, be able to continue on in this presidential race, but uh, I can assure you that the only thing I've ever wanted to do was to try to help people. I think that whoever does uh, win the presidency needs to be somebody who is willing to check Big Pharma, who understands that we have got to find the jobs of the future, who understands how important it is to look out for the working class citizens and support our union so that all working class citizens can have a voice at the table, and that's important. So. Thank you very much for your support. Sappers clear the way, airborne all the way. Yeah, that that makes me sad. I really wanted to see him on the debate stage. I mean, I was really, really looking forward to seeing him on the debate stage. And as I said uh, previously, I think that he would have played the role, perhaps unwittingly, but he would have played the role of Bernie Sanders' attack dog because I don't think Richard Ojeda would have held back at all on anybody on the stage who he sniffed out as corporatist. Anybody who was, you know, kind of faking the funk and acting like they were on board with the right policies, but ultimately serving Wall Street and literally calling Wall Street CEOs, asking for their support, as many candidates are doing. Cory Booker, uh, you know, there have been reports of him doing that, Kamala Harris, Kirsten Gillibrand. So I think that Ojeda would have been uncompromising in going after those people. And I also think Ojeda wouldn't have laid a glove on Bernie and perhaps some of the other candidates he wouldn't have laid a glove on. Um, so I think that he would have had um, actually a very positive effect on the race. However, I do agree with his assessment that he wouldn't have been able to win. And I think that there, there are many reasons for that. But I think it is true that many people who may have considered supporting him they're just Bernie Sanders people, and he's the original OG. And when Bernie jumps in the race, you know, their vote's going to go to Bernie. And even though we, you know, we can sit here and say positive things about Ojeda and how massively anti-corruption he is, for example, he's got a wonderful anti-corruption plank in his platform, um, ultimately we know that Bernie's more of the total package, in my opinion. I think Bernie's clearly better on foreign policy, and Bernie's better on uh, many issues and uh, even though Ojeda is a real populist bulldog and he's perhaps the strongest on unions and the strongest on corruption, um, it would have been hard for him to overcome the fact that many of his supporters are going to go to Bernie, and it also would have been hard for him to overcome some things about his past that I don't think many primary voters were going to look past, including the fact that he voted for Republicans for president most of his life. You know, there's uh, even somebody like me, and I like Richard Ojeda a lot, when I hear that, you know, he voted for uh, McCain over Obama and then... 
uh, Romney over Obama. I have zero sympathy for that. I have a modicum of sympathy for the Trump vote because the reasons he gives are, hey, man, listen, it's all about I don't want to lose. I don't want people in West Virginia to lose our jobs. And Trump said, I'm going to make sure you keep your job. Hillary was talking about uh, the opposite, talking about we got to totally get rid of coal. And he knows how that impacts people on the ground. And, you know, Jetta says uh, Trump sounded much better on trade policy. So I can actually sympathize with somebody who voted for Trump for those populist reasons. Now, Ojeda, you know, feels bad about voting for Trump now, and that's another area where I agree with him. If, and he's being honest and upfront about that. Hey, I think I was wrong. I, Trump is a liar. Now that's proven. So I actually can look past that part, but what I can't look past is the Mitt Romney one and the fucking McCain one. And, you know, I think that um, on some of the social issues, he would have been weaker. On environmental issues, he would have been weaker than many of the other candidates. And even though he's really great on unions and corruption, I don't think that would have been enough to get him over the top. And uh, he knows that he's seen the evidence for the past however many weeks or months since he announced that he's running, that I'm just not going to be able to muster up the support to make this, uh, you know, a serious campaign. And I think he's doing a very noble thing here, which is he's saying, as a result of that, I don't want to take money, because he knows who's going to donate to Richard Ojeda working class people. And he knows, I don't want to take money from these people if, if I know that my campaign's not going anywhere. Something about that feels unethical, feels immoral. And so in a very strange way, the conclusion of Richard Ojeda's campaign ends with the same sentiment that it originally started with, which is compassion for working people. And I genuinely believe he cares about those issues massively. That's why he launched his campaign. And I think that's why he's ending his campaign. Um, but, yeah, I'm sad to see him drop out because I think he would have been a wonderful addition to the debates, and I would have loved to see him smack up some corporatists on stage. Um, hopefully he still stays involved in uh, politics. I think he will do that. Um, you know, can, will he take on Manchin the next time? Maybe. Um, will he take on some other West Virginia politician? Maybe. We'll see. Will he, uh, you know, snuggle up close to Bernie and maybe get a position as Secretary of Labor or something? That'd be pretty sweet. I think he'd be a wonderful Secretary of Labor. Uh, so whatever. We'll see what happens. But Richard Ojeda, I like him, man. I like him. I have disagreements with him, but I like him. And uh, a little sad to see him drop out. All right, let's take a break when we come back. Um, Trump's wall, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren. We got all that and more. Don't go anywhere. Stay right there. Beach.
y'all on back, bitch. Okay, um, <clears throat> let's discuss one of my predictions, which I've been making for a while now. And, um, my timing has been woefully off, but in terms of what actually ends up happening, I may end up being correct. So, let me explain. Well, my timing was off, but it looks like my prediction on Trump uh, is going to come true. Breaking, Trump administration preparing draft to declare, or excuse me, draft order to declare national emergency to fund wall. The White House is preparing a draft of an emergency declaration President Trump could issue to secure funding for a wall along the southern border, CNN reported Thursday. The news outlet obtained internal documents that show the administration has identified more than $7 billion in funding for the wall if Trump opts to declare a national emergency. The draft declaration argues that the massive amount of aliens who unlawfully enter the United States each day is a direct threat to the safety and security of our nation and constitutes a national emergency, CNN reported. The administration would look to pull most of the money uh, for the wall from military construction and Pentagon civil works funds, with additional funding coming from Treasury forfeitures in the Department of Homeland Security, CNN reported. The declaration has been updated within the past weeks, an official told CNN. Okay, so um, this is what I've been predicting. Donald Trump, when he gave a, a speech from the Oval Office, and then he gave another speech a, a few days later, for both those speeches, I said, okay, he's going to do it now, I bet. He's going to announce that he's declaring a national emergency, and he's going to build the wall without approval from Congress. My prediction was wrong those two times, but it looks like my prediction ultimately will be correct, and it's just a matter of when he decides to pull the trigger on it. Now, the other part of my prediction is this is going to get tied up in court because there's 100% guaranteed to be litigation over this. And I think that uh, it, it honestly depends. If the courts are all massively right-leaning, they might let it slide. But if they're being honest and they're being accurate, they would say, this is unconstitutional. You can't do this. And also, listen, if he does this and let's say it gets approved, well, that sets an, a precedent that the Republicans will come to regret pretty quickly when any actual left-wing president gets elected and he wants to declare a national emergency or she wants to declare a national emergency to fix our health care system or to you know, wipe the student loan debt slate clean or do any of those things. Like, if you set the precedent of the president gets to act on his own um, to, to approve funding for whatever he or she thinks is a national emergency, well, look out. Because then, you know, we're going to be functioning a hell of a lot more like uh, a dictatorship than uh, a democratic system of government. I mean, already in many, in many instances we act more like a dictatorship. But this would be um, a step further on that path down that road. And uh, President Bernie Sanders declaring a national emergency and doing a Medicare for All system, that's a possibility if Donald Trump does this, gets his wall, and then it somehow stands up in court. I don't think it could hold up in court, though. I really don't. I don't think... Because here's the thing. I think a court would have to look at the question of whether or not this objectively is a national emergency. And any court that's being honest on that front is going to go, it's just not a national emergency. You say it's a national emergency. It's your pet issue that you care about the most. But 
Like, they, the thing that they cite in the draft, I'm not kidding, and you just heard me run through it. Um, massive amount of aliens who unlawfully enter the United States each day is a direct threat to the safety and security of our nation. But that is empirically incorrect. We've gone over the studies. In fact, you undocumented immigrants and documented immigrants, respectively, they commit less crime than native-born citizens. So you cannot make the claim that these undocumented immigrants are a direct threat to the security and safety of our nation when they have a lower crime rate than native citizens. That doesn't make any sense. It's just not true. You're just wrong. Now, I get it. In your circles, in right-wing circles, they like to over-focus on the crimes of immigrants to try to make the case to do what's called demagoguing, to try to make the case, see, they're such a big problem. They're such a giant problem. It's not me. It's the, this is the fact of the matter. So obviously we need to crack down on immigration because they're criminals. But I just told you, the statistics show that they commit crime at a lower rate. So you're not, I mean, if any court looks at that fact, okay, you want to declare a national emergency and, and address this issue that way? Well, step number one is, is this actually a national emergency? And when they come back with the answer of no, they're going to slap down your fucking shitty wall. So I think he'll try to do this. It'll get, uh, you know, caught up in court. There's no way that they'll finish building the wall and then next administration could just reverse it immediately. So we'll see what happens, but um, we're getting into some weird, funky territory, and um, I'm very curious to see how it unfolds. Okay, next. Let's make fun of Joe Biden. So Joe Biden made an ass of himself posturing for a potential 2020 presidential run. Look at this video, and then I'll explain why you could add this to the never-ending list of Biden gaffes. I get in trouble. I read in the New York Times today that I uh, that one of my problems is if I ever run for president, uh, I like Republicans. Okay, well, bless me, Father, if I have sinned. Um, but, uh, um, but, you know, from where I, where I come from, I don't know how you get anything done. I don't know how you get anything done until we start talking to one another again. The point of this, of the matter is that at your level, where the rubber meets the road, I don't find a lot of distinction between the problems Republican governors, I mean, mayors face and Democratic mayors face. We have different philosophies, but we want to get things done. Hey, NBC Whoa. News viewers, thanks for Oops. Okay. Okay, so uh, let me explain this to him since he's making a point of being glib and flippant on purpose. So, Joe, the problem is not that, you know, you work with Republicans or you're bipartisan or that you like Republicans. The problem is that you agree to work with them on their terms. See, nobody goes after Bernie Sanders or Ro Khanna when they work with Republicans. Why? Because they agree to work with Republicans where they don't compromise their own policy beliefs. So, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders used to work with Ron Paul all the time. Why? Because they agreed on, hey, let's stop the wars. They agreed on, hey, the drug war is stupid, and maybe we shouldn't be locking people up because they freely decide to put a substance in their body. So 
when you work with the other side on issues where you have actual points of agreement, nobody's mad at you. I, at Politicon, I was on a panel um, with Charlie Kirk, of all people. Now, Charlie and I probably disagree on 80% of issues. But the, the whole point of the panel was, how can we all get along? So one of the things I brought up was, okay, um, you guys say you like smaller government. I'm in favor of smaller government because I want to end the wars. I'm in favor of smaller government because I want to stop the NSA illegally, unconstitutionally spying on people. Uh, I, you know, I, I hate our alliance with Saudi Arabia. And those are issues where Charlie Kirk was like, yeah, I agree with you on this. Okay. Now, d- afterwards, anybody say, Kyle Kolinsky and Charlie Kirk. And Kirk. No, nobody did that. Why? Because him and I are having a point of agreement where I'm not compromising what my actual beliefs are. Now, if I go out there and I say, oh, um, by the way, fuck the minimum wage. I, don't, I think people should work full time and I'll make enough money to survive. And Charlie's like, I agree. Well, then everybody would unleash the dogs of hell on me. Why? Because I'm fucking, I, I don't believe in that. I don't agree with that. And I think that's an odious belief. And I would be agreeing with him on his terms. So that's the problem, Joe. And what does Joe do? It's not like he gets fucking Mitch McConnell to agree, hey, man, we should get more people health care. No, he doesn't. When, when Joe Biden agrees with the Republicans, it's to do their bidding. It's, oh, hey, should we go easier on Wall Street? Fuck yeah, let's go easier on Wall Street. There's a video circulating on Twitter right now, and it's been for the past week, of Joe Biden's rebuttal to President George H.W.'s Bush, George H.W. Bush's speech on the drug war. George H.W. Bush was a big old drug warrior. He was like, oh, yeah, we got to lock people up, and this is terrible, and it's a scourge to our country, and we need to lock more people up. And Joe Biden gave a response, attacking George H.W. Bush from the right and saying, no, 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 you're not a drug uh, war hawk enough. You need to be more hawkish. You need to lock more people up. You need to show less mercy. You need to punish people more. See, that's the problem, Joe. Joe Biden was giving a speech um, about a year ago, and he was, um, he was saying, oh, back in the day, we used, to, we used to work together. And, hey, even there were segregationist Republicans that were still in power, and I worked with them. It was lovely. What? Why would you brag about that? He fucking campaigned for a Republican when a Democrat was running against him in a district recently. Like, it's not – he's so glib about it. Like, oh, I guess you don't like that I'm bipartisan. No, it's that – when you're agreeing with Republicans, you're agreeing with them on their terms to do their shitty ideas. And by the way, dipshit, you're about to maybe run in a Democratic primary. I, I, there was a great tweet the other day. I forget who did it, but they said something like, ah, yes, that old school winning message of I agree with the other guys. Are you trying to lose? Did you learn nothing from fucking Hillary Clinton's fiasco? She lost to the dumbest guy on the fucking planet, a reality star buffoon. Why did she lose to him? Because her whole fucking policy was, her whole uh, platform was, I'm going to be everything to everybody. I'm in the center. I like bipartisanship. I like Republicans. Donald Trump is uniquely bad. The other Republicans are good people. How'd that work out for you? It turns out when you spit in the base of, when you spit in the eye of your base, they tell you to fuck off and they don't like you and you don't turn them out. And you could fucking shame them all day long about that, but guess what? You're still going to lose elections. So how about, for once, Democratic politicians do the smart thing and serve their base? (gasps) Wow! Yes, maybe then you'd win elections because left-wing ideas are more popular than right-wing ideas according to every poll. So I don't run on those ideas instead of, I like the other side. I agree with them. Don't you want to, I'm such an adult. Don't you want to vote for me? No, because guess what? Washington is fucking massively corrupt and hated. And your argument is going to be, I'm the quintessential Washington insider? 
Well, congratulations, you fucking dolt. You don't know anything about politics, even though you've been in politics your entire goddamn life. And that's the problem, Joe Biden. That's the problem. You're too deep inside that bubble, and you can't fucking see straight. Joe Biden, if he runs in 2020, he's now made crystal clear. He's going to run in the lane of, who, me? I'm the serious, moderate, centrist candidate. That's who I am. You should vote for me. You will get obliterated, and it will be hilarious. I understand a lot of polls show you right now is one of the top guys. I get that. But you will plummet in the polls. By the way, all the evidence backs up what I'm saying. Why? He's run for president before every time he tanks in the polls. He ran at least two other times, maybe three. He tanks in the polls every time. When he starts talking, his poll numbers go down. Same thing happens with Hillary. Now, Bernie's the opposite. He starts talking, his poll numbers go up. Why? Because he's talking about real shit that people agree with and relate to. So, but Joe Biden, I'm telling you, he's actively choosing, if I run, I'm going to run as the centrist candidate. <laughs> Read the room, bitch. God damn it, you couldn't be more wrong in your interpretation of today's events. Oh, my God, he has no idea about politics in today's day and age. He's so out of touch. So, anyway, go ahead, Joe. Make an ass of yourself. It'll be funny. We'll all be laughing at you. And what will be fascinating to see is, if he runs, he'll run as the centrist candidate. As soon as he realizes that he's plummeting in the polls, it'll be interesting to see if he does the 180. Because he very well might. He's a politician. So, oh, yeah, I agree. Working with Republicans is great. You know what I'm here for? I'm here to balance the budget. I'm, here to, I'm not here to tell people fairy tales about things we can get. I don't think we'll ever get single payer. But I'm the serious candidate who wants to expand access to health care. Like, if he runs on all this shitty centrist garbage, poll numbers will plummet. And then... He'll have to make a decision, and knowing Joe Biden, he'll probably be like, oh, fuck, 180. No, me? Oh, I'm left to Bernie, bro. What are you talking about, bro? Me? I'm so far left, bro. I think we should make the United States an anarcho-syndicalist nation, bro. Democratize the workplace, bitch. That's what, that's what he'll do. He'll fucking flip. Oh, politics is so gross, man. I don't know why we all are interested in it. Okay, let's go to Elizabeth Warren. I like this story a lot. So Elizabeth Warren is a fascinating character. Um, You know, we've been covering her for a long time on this show, and she is one of the biggest hit-or-miss characters uh, that we cover. You know, Um, there are times where I look at stuff Elizabeth Warren is doing, and I go, I fucking love Elizabeth Warren, man. I've told the story on air before of um, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau People don't know that she pushed Obama to do the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau as part of the Dodd-Frank bill in the wake of the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. And that was, without a doubt, the best part of their Wall Street reform, because it really was, it's an office that oversees criminal banksters. And I got money returned to me because of Elizabeth Warren. I've told the story, but I was uh, out for somebody's birthday in the city in my 20s, and um I, uh, I, I like lost a credit card or something and somebody was charging shit on it. And the next day I call and cancel the credit card and the people there tell me, Hey, listen, uh, do you want identity theft protection to make sure this doesn't happen again? And I'm like, okay, how much? They get said like five bucks a month or 10 bucks a month. I'm like, okay, fine. Sure. Let's do that. Let's do identity theft protection. I don't want this to happen again. Well, cut to like a year later or so. And I get a check in the mail for all of the fees for the identity theft protection. Why? Because credit card company was doing fraud. They would sell you 
identity theft protection, and then there would be nothing there. There was no system to track it. There was no nothing. They were just taking money from you. That's it. It was because of an investigation from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that found that out and then refunded everybody's money. They refunded $12 billion to defrauded Americans. This is government working for the people. This was Elizabeth Warren's idea. So I don't, a lot of people have just totally like put her in the corporatist category. I don't agree with that. I think it's fair to say she's got one foot in that establishment camp, one foot in the actual populist lefty camp. I think that's fair to say. But when people totally write her off, that actually gets me angry because I know it's not true because I've seen the impacts on my own life, okay? Now, having said that, like I said, she's a hit or miss character. What's the miss? Sometimes she gets overly political, man. Look at what happened in, with fucking Bernie Sanders and, and Hillary Clinton. She stayed out of it and didn't endorse Bernie. Now, that matters. It matters because we all know ideologically she agrees much more with Bernie than she does with Hillary. Why did she stay back? Because of politics. She didn't want to uh, announce against the person who everybody in Washington thought Hillary was going to win. She didn't want to get on Hillary's bad side. She didn't want to go against the first female president. Oh! So she played politics. You know, she, when she was asked about the DNC rigging it against Bernie, she's like, yeah, it's rigged. Then, three days later, she comes out, oh, did I say it was rigged? I didn't, I meant, I'm not sure if it was rigged. Maybe, maybe that's too strong a word. Come on, Liz. Come on. What are you doing? So sometimes she's overly political. And I think the longer she's in Washington, the more out of touch she becomes. But I think her instincts are actually very populist and very good. So, now having said all that, we fast forward to this week. Elizabeth Warren uh, goes on Chris Hayes' show on MSNBC. And she proposes a new policy idea. And it's an attempt to separate herself from a crowded Democratic field, for sure. But look at this idea. She's going to lay it out in detail this new idea as to how we fight uh, income and wealth inequality and how we give people equal opportunity. Take a look and then we'll discuss. So the way that this is written is to say, first of all, going to tax all your assets wherever located around the globe. So if you were planning to move them to Switzerland or some island, doesn't make any difference. They are all going to be taxed. The second part of it is we're going to build right into the uh, administration of this tax that it has a very high rate of monitoring, of auditing the rich people on the ultra-millionaire tax. So we're going to be out there counting them and watching them. And the third part of it is, you know, once you identify these assets, it's actually not that complicated and hard because unlike some other places that tried to build this, this one isn't going to have a bunch of exceptions. This one says all your assets, wherever located, and we're going to keep counting. And you're going to have to pay, if you have more than $50 million in assets, this is the ultra-rich, you're going to have to pay 2% a year of that amount over $50 million. And, and here's the deal about the money, though. I want to underline this part. It's to use that money to what, build right? opportunity for the rest of America. So this is the kind of money, think about this, over the next decade we could produce just short of $3 trillion. That's the kind of money where we could pay for child care, high quality child care for all of our kids. It's the kind of money where we could do real relief on student loan debt. It's 
it's the kind of money where we could make a real start on a green new deal. It's the kind of money where we could bring down the cost of health care. It's the kind of money where you give somebody else in this economy a chance, a government that's not just working for the tippy top, a government that starts to work for the rest of America. So, so. I love that idea. And I have to say, even though I'm, I'm a little bit of an economic and, and political science wonk, I never uh, thought about this, never read about it, didn't know it was uh, you know, a proposal that existed out there. Um, but the idea is she called it an ultra-millionaire tax. It's a wealth tax. And you saw them listed on, on screen there, but the idea is you do a 2% tax on households with assets above $50 million, 3% on households with assets above $1 billion. And uh, it, it draws from just only 75,000 families in the U.S. this would apply to. That's 0.1% of U.S. households. And it would raise $2.75 trillion, $2.75 trillion over 10 years. As she said, that's enough, for example, to totally wipe the student loan debt slate clean and then some, and then have more left over. Listen, this is a wonderful idea because you raise a tremendous amount of money and you do it by impacting only the richest of the richest of the rich and they will barely feel it, if at all. Again, 2% with households with assets above 50 million, 3% on households with assets above 1 billion. Listen, you, to me, this, I, this proposal is almost the biggest no-brainer I've ever seen in my life. I didn't even know this idea existed until this week, and now that I've read about it, I was like, God, that's fucking genius, man. I mean, what a brilliant, because there's no, I mean, what's, what's the counterargument going to be? What are the Republicans going to say? I'm against this, because you want to tax regular people. It's the ultra-millionaire tax. It's for the 0.1%. It's for households with assets above $50 million. The idea that those like, oh, and this is how they spin it. The right's like, oh. Why do you want to punish these people? Why do you want to punish success? Punish? Bet you can't spend that money in a lifetime if you tried. $50 million? Jesus Christ. Seriously? That's who you're going to go to bat for? That's who? Oh, pity the poor $50 millionaire. Wow, how massively out of touch you guys are. So I love this idea. It's a bold idea. It's a new idea. And she's trying to separate herself from the field. Now, I do have bad news for you. Um, I still support Bernie Sanders. <laughs> well, that's not bad news. That's, I mean, I think that's good news, but a bad news for her. Because even though I love this idea, even though it's a brilliant idea, um, it's not like Bernie doesn't have, like, Bernie doesn't have this exact proposal in his platform, although I'm sure he would add it in a heartbeat if you ask him, hey, do you like this idea? I'm sure he'd love it. But he does have other ideas that are just as good and just as creative, and they're both coming from the same, um, you know, viewpoint. They're both coming from the same... Uh, philosophical disposition from the same, um, you know, basic stance in terms of what they want to do with the economy and how they want to help regular people. But this is great. Listen, Elizabeth Warren here is trying, and she's trying in a way that works, okay? So I want to be clear about that. What I've said from the beginning about Elizabeth Warren is, hey, Liz, tell your advisors to fuck right off and go run your campaign based on your instincts and do what you do best. You know what Elizabeth Warren does best? She is the, the, just the loving grandma 
who is such a policy wonk that she literally wants to sit down with you and talk numbers and Wall Street regulation and, like, all these uh, – stuff like the wealth tax. Like, she probably eats, sleeps, and breathes this kind of detailed policy analysis stuff. And I think that if she sells that, it actually works. Her advisors would tell her, no, you can't do that. you got to get in the mud with Trump, and you got to fucking fling mud back at him, and you got to do that. And they don't know what the fuck they're – nobody knows less about politics than Democratic strategists because they've been losing for as long as I've been alive, okay? So she needs to trust her instincts and be who she is because who she is is actually very likable and uh, very persuasive. So if she keeps going down this road, man, like – and you'll notice it too. There are, you see glimmers of this and reflections of this in reality. So when Elizabeth Warren tries to get in the mud and throw mud back at Trump, you go look at some YouTube videos of that and it's massive dislikes. This video, massive likes, like 90, 95% likes. Why? Because she's talking about stuff that people are like, okay, this is a serious person proposing serious um, you know, policy to try to improve everybody's life and fix our system. And people see that. I think that there's too much talking down to Americans and too much like, oh, they would never understand it if we talk about policy. What the fuck are you talking about? They know more about policy than you idiots do. Many, most Republican politicians don't even know what a fucking marginal tax rate is. Meanwhile, it, you know, it was like some crazy high number, some percentage of Americans support Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's 70% tax on income above, mar- top marginal tax rate on income, income above $10 million. So she keeps doing this and she's going to be a force to be reckoned with. But um, So I want to give her credit for this. But yeah, I still... I still support Bernie because Bernie's, uh, you know, the OG of stuff like this. And it is clear that when you look at the totality of Bernie's ideology versus Elizabeth Warren's, Bernie is to the left of Warren, and I think that it more coincides with my philosophy. All right, next. Oh, you think I want to talk about this next one? Bitch, I don't. Bitch, I don't. All right, so here's some news that I 100% don't want to talk about, but I feel like I have to talk about it because everybody's talking about it, and it's a big story. Hillary Clinton, the 2016 Democratic presidential nominee, reportedly has yet to rule out running for the Oval Office again in 2020. CNN White House correspondent Jeff Zelaney said Sunday on CNN's Inside Politics that Clinton told people as recently as this week she isn't closing the doors to the idea of running in 2020. I'm told by three people that as recently as this week, she's telling people that, look, given all this news from the indictments, particularly the Roger Stone indictment, she talked to several people saying, look, I'm not, even clo- I'm not closing the doors to this, Delaney said. It does not mean that there's a campaign in waiting or a plan in the works, he continued. The former Secretary of State has previously not ruled out another presidential bid, saying last October that she would like to be president. So, so this is not only noteworthy because she might actually run again, it's also noteworthy because of the reason that she gets, okay? Now, <clears throat> look at somebody like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or even Tulsi Gabbard. Like, if you bring up to them, 
hey, why? Why are you doing this? You know, what's going on? You get from Bernie, the answer is, are you kidding me? The system is so screwed up, and we need radical change, and we need it right now. We need a new FDR. We need a massive redistribution of wealth from, you know, uh, the, the rich to the working class, because for the longest time we've had class war in the other direction, the rich waging it on the, the poor and working class and rigging the rules in their favor. We need to act on climate change right now. This is dire. I mean, it's not even a question. We need to treat this like the existential threat that it is. You talk to Elizabeth Warren, I'm sure you get a similar answer to Bernie, except maybe tone down a level or two, because I think he realizes how massively urgent all this stuff is, and she just agrees with it, but maybe isn't on the same panic level that Bernie might be. Tulsi Gabbard, I think her main issue is, listen, we got to stop with this fucking crazy empire bullshit. I mean, she's a veteran. She's lived through this, and she knows, I'm against these offensive regime change wars. This is, this is criminal. This is terrible. We can't keep doing this. Are you kidding me? As our country crumbles and we're fighting all these wars for no reason? That's her thing, and there's a sense of urgency there as well. For Hillary, what, is, what's, what does she say? Again, not me. It's from the article. She says it's because of, she, I, I'm not closing the door to it. Why? Well, because, you know, the Roger Stone indictment. What? The Roger Stone indictment. So, in other words, what she's saying is, well, I mean, come on, obviously, I'm so vindicated about Trump and Russia that <laughs> I'll give the American people a chance to right their wrong and pick the proper candidate because, look, his entire administration was in cahoots and collusion with Vladimir Putin, and all these indictments now show that I was right. And so, obviously, if the American people are presented with a chance to right their wrong, they're going to say, fine, we agree with you, Hillary. Okay. Except Hillary, what an insanely narcissistic view, like, to not... It's not based in policy. Again, I just told you, I'm pretty sure the other candidates would be like, oh, my God, we need to do Medicare for all. We got to do this. We got to do that. Hillary's just like, well, Trump, Putin, Russia. I can just step in, and I'm guaranteed the nomination. She would get obliterated if she ran this time. Why? Because of shit like this, man. Shit like this. They've pulled this issue. The American people are like, where do I rank Russia on the list of things that I'm like, super concerned about. It's ranked near the bottom. I'm not kidding about that. Gallup did it or Pew did it not that long ago. So for you to, because she's so mired inside that DC elitist bubble, that establishment bubble where this is the biggest issue. And it's just like, yeah, obviously I'm right about everything. And the American people made a mistake and now they can write that mistake. If I just step in the race, it would honestly, it'd be hilarious. And I'm not kidding here. I actually want her to run. Why do I want her to run? so that we finally get the, you know, the metaphorical death blow to the Clinton ideology, which has been dominant in the Democratic Party for so long. Neoliberal corporatism and centrism. And they're still convinced, like, this is what the people want. No, 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 the base is now totally past you, not even close. I mean, any other candidate has a better chance than, than Hillary. Cory Booker has a better chance than Hillary Clinton. I'm not kidding about that. And he has almost no chance, okay? But seriously, that's how past, like... Even Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, like, they get it. Like, they see, like, okay, the left is ascendant, and there's a fu- fucking wave. We got to try to ride the wave as opposed to try to trying to counter it. So they see it. They see the political reality. She still doesn't get it. She doesn't get that the heart of the party is with Bernie Sanders' philosophy. She doesn't get it at all. So, and then, by the way, in, in regards to Roger Stone, 
the indictment, if you actually go through the indictment, which I did, it's for obstruction, making false statements, and witness tampering. So in other words, in typical idiot Trump fashion, the thing that Roger Stone is getting charged with is not an original crime. It's what he did after the fact when the FBI was investigating. It's the oldest trick in the book that the FBI does. I'm not going to get you for an original thing, because maybe there isn't even an original thing, but I'm going to get you for the stuff you did after. Again, uh, making false statements, witness tampering, and obstruction. So a seasoned prosecutor, somebody who knows what they're doing, that's how they can you know, trick people up and get them. And that's exactly what happened with Roger Stone. Now, I think Donald Trump is running a criminal enterprise. It's just not the nature of which that Hillary Clinton and all the corporate Democrats think it is. You know, I, I've said, I think Donald Trump will get indicted the day he steps down as president. But what do I think he's going to get indicted on? Money laundering charges, many different financial crimes. The idea that you're going to prove this grand plot of fucking treason or collusion or some goofy shit, it's not going to happen. That's, that's a liberal pipe dream. That's a liberal Benghazi. It's simply not going to happen. Uh, and in fact, Vox, not me, Vox makes clear in the article that I read about the Roger Stone indictment that it's not really what people think it is because they're thinking it's proving some grand theory of, of collusion and Putin controlling them, and it just doesn't. In fact, again, uh, obstruction, making false statements, and witness tampering. Now, by the way, am I happy Roger Stone's going down? That dude's middle name should be I Commit Crimes. <laughs> Roger I Commit Crimes Stone. He is one of the biggest criminals. He's a career criminal. He was back in the fucking Nixon White House, okay? He, he relishes in this idea of being a victim, and by the way, uh, or being a, excuse me, a perpetrator being the bad guy. And I bet uh, Alex Jones is shitting his pants right now because those two have become buddy-buddy over the past uh, couple years. But So I'm happy Manafort went down, Flynn, fucking um, uh, Stone, and all the others. In fact, I hope and I think that there might be some, some indictments coming for Don Jr., among others. And I think all that's good because it's all, it all ties back to a monument. It all ties back to his sprawling business empire, which has massive corruption involved in it. But the grand plot of Putin controlling them like they're puppets not going to happen. But that doesn't matter is the point. The point is they're still fucking criminals and they're probably still going to go down. And that's a good thing. But Hillary's interpretation of this is obviously I was proven right about everything. They're Putin puppets. Look at what happened with Roger Stone. Therefore, I'll just step in and I'll win in 2020 and everybody will know, oh, we've righted our wrong and the queen is now back in her rightful place. The party has moved past her. The country has moved past her. By the way, she's now unique among politicians. In what sense? Usually when a politician leaves office, their approval rating bounces back big time. When Bush left office, he had like a 29% approval rating. It was abysmally low. It's even lower than Trump's is now. Guess what? Fast forward to today, he's above 50%. Why? Absence makes the heart grow fonder, as the old saying goes. That's what happened with George W. Bush. Even though he's a war criminal, even though he crashed the economy, even though he's incompetent, even though he's bad, he's terrible, he's all these ter horrible things. But he was gone long enough where people went, hmm, I guess I just have nostalgia for that era. So, but every other politician, this happens. They leave office, the uh, approval rating goes up. Hillary, she, her approval rating has gone down since she was last in the public eye. It's in the 30s. She had a 35% approval rating as of a couple weeks ago, last time I checked. 30-something percent. So it, it's, she has less than no chance, less than no chance. But I want her to run because she will help split that corporatist vote even more. And we need more corporatists to jump in to split that vote so you make a lane for the actual lefties and make it so the lefties will get uh, the most votes, which I think will happen. But it would be good if she jumps in the race for that reason.
because that'll split the vote among Cory Booker and fucking if Beto O'Rourke runs and Kamala Harris and, and Kirsten Gillibrand and all the other corporatists, and it'll leave a nice, lovely lane for Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, hopefully Bernie Sanders, likely Bernie Sanders, and um, they'll end up winning. So even though we don't want to see Hillary anymore, it actually would be good for the cause if she jumped back in the race because you get the final metaphorical death blow to that dead ideology. Okay, next. Oh, actually, I got to pull up a tweet for this as well. Give me a second, bitch. Give me a second, bitch. Where is my tweet? Okay, you guys are going to love this story. Here we go. So I have some interesting news in the 2020 conversation. Former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz reportedly thinking seriously about 2020 run as an independent. Oh, boy. So this guy, like he just set up his Twitter account. He is uh, one of these guys who is just insanely narcissistic. And he wants to ride in on his white horse and save the country and save the civilization. He reminds me a lot of Bloomberg in the sense that Bloomberg and Schultz both think they can basically buy themselves an election and buy themselves the presidency. And then they get to, you know, be adored by the hordes of people in this country who need somebody, who need a kind, gentle billionaire to save them from the bad billionaire. And you want to talk about misreading the room. Because his whole thing was, uh, I'm considering running for 2020 as a centrist candidate. Like he said, I want to run as a centrist candidate. When he tweeted this, like, it was an endless fucking cadre of shitting on him in the replies. I was laughing my ass off as I read the replies. Because everybody was basically like, fuck you. Nobody asked for this. Nobody likes you. That You're doing a billionaire vanity project like the piece of shit that you are. And it gave me life when I saw that. <laughs> so now, why is this really relevant? Because he's going to get like six votes. I think, really think he is. He's going to get destroyed. But he, this is relevant because now Democrats have their own Kasich. So John Kasich was considering like, oh, I might run against Trump. Originally, he was thinking in the Republican primary, um, you know, cooler heads prevailed when you realized he would get curb stomped in a way that's hilarious if he ran against Trump in a, in a prime, Republican primary. So then he was kind of floating the idea of, hey, maybe I'll run as like uh, an independent, myself and the breakfast cereal, John Hickenlooper, you know, uh, Kasich, Hickenlooper's 2020. I think on a unity ticket we could win. And so the idea was with um, Kasich, he would also get six votes if he ran as an independent, but he would pull those six votes from the right, which would hurt Trump. So even if, let's say, Kasich only pulled in 2%, from Trump, from, the, from um, you know, the right. That's enough to tank the election from Trump and pull it from Trump and end up giving it to the Democrat. Now, on the flip side, um, Schultz, he would pull more from the Democrats. Now, 
again, don't get me wrong, he'd get like six votes. But let's assume for argument's sake he gets 2%. Is that 2% theoretically enough to maybe pull it from the Democrats? The answer is yes. And he's actually very clear, oh, I, I would only really want to run if it's like a lefty that ends up winning the Democratic primary. And it's most likely going to be because we know the mood of the country. We know the mood of the party. We know that we're not fucking around anymore. We want real answers to real problems. And um, so if it's Elizabeth Warren or if it's Bernie Sanders or if it's Tulsi Gabbard, he'll probably run. And he wouldn't feel bad at all about just jack, you know, 2% from the, the left. And then that might turn the election over to Trump. So here's... Here's what I hope happens. Either Schultz doesn't run and Kasich doesn't run, or Kasich runs and Schultz runs, or just Kasich runs. So you wouldn't have to worry if neither of them run. You wouldn't have to worry if both of them run. But would you have to worry a little bit if it's just Schultz running and Kasich doesn't run on the Republican side? You'd have to worry a little bit. Now, I'm not going to shame him for hopping in the race because it's a democracy. However, this is functionally more like an oligarchy, man, because the only reason he's even, the only reason anybody's even fucking talking about him is because he's massively, massively ultra wealthy and he's buying positive press. He was on 60 Minutes the other night. Fuck you doing on 60 Minutes? Who are you? You're a CEO of fucking created Starbucks. Wow, you sell overpriced coffee. What a fucking genius. He's buying his way into the room and that's what pisses me off. Not that he doesn't really believe in his ideology. I think he probably does. I think he probably is a goofy centrist. But... He bought his way into the conversation the same way Bloomberg did. Nobody would give a second look at Bloomberg if he was a regular dude. Are you kidding me? The dude fucking, he banned large sodas in New York. He's pro-stop and frisk, even though every objective study says it's unconstitutional and it cracks down on, on uh, poor people of color for no reason when 99% of the time you get the wrong people. You get the, or excuse me, 99% of the time you don't get anything out of the stop and frisk. So... He bought his way into the conversation. That's what pisses me off, is that he's just trying to buy himself an election, buy himself a country. And in the process, might really fuck shit up. Now, I have an answer, though. Uh, so what you're seeing now is you're going to see a lot of establishment. See, this is an area where it's funny because the left and establishment Democrats, like centrists, we're actually now in agreement. And we're all going to be dunking on Howard Schultz. Because let's say you're a centrist-minded Democrat and you want Beto O'Rourke 2020, or uh, you want Cory Booker 2020, you also are going to be like, hey, Howard Schultz, what the fuck are you doing? You're going to run as an independent? You're going to jack some votes from the Democrats? What are you doing? So what you see is this weird temporary alliance between centrist-minded Democrats, donut Twitter, <laughs> and uh, flower Twitter, left Twitter, where we're all like, okay, fuck this guy Schultz, and we're all going to dunk on him. And that's a wonderful show. That's you found one of the only things that gets us to unify. <laughs> uh, 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 but, but here's the, the solution, by the way, and we all should agree to this solution. We can fix this. You know how you fix it? Ranked choice voting. So if you have ranked choice voting, doesn't matter. Let fucking Schultz run. Let Kasich run. Let fucking anybody run. And by the way, just to go back to the point about Bloomberg and, and Schultz for a second, Richard Ojeda announces a Democrat. He got less coverage than Howard Schultz and Bloomberg, and they haven't even announced yet. And Richard and Ojeda, who now dropped out because he realized he's not going to go anywhere because they have no fucking coverage because the media is fucking biased as shit. But he announced and he got less coverage than fucking Bloomberg and Schultz. Why? Bloomberg and Schultz are rich as fuck and they buy their way into the conversation. But if you have ranked choice voting, you don't have to worry about any even potential idea of a spoiler. You just don't. 
because you have ranked choice voting. So you could say, hey, my number one in the last election, Jill Stein, number two, Hillary, number three, Gary Johnson, number four, Trump. We're good to go. So now you're going to see a lot of people, part of the establishment, who maybe understand the wisdom of ranked choice voting now, because fucking Howard Schultz might throw the Democrat away from the Democrat and give it to Trump, might throw the election away from the, from the Democrat and give it to Trump, and they're going to go, oh, shit, we need to do something to fix it. Well, yeah, we've been screaming about this for fucking years, the left has. Because every time they try to voter shame, or they try to, um, you know, democracy shame Jill Stein, or they try to democracy shame Gary Johnson, um, we're like, why don't you just fix this then, if you're concerned about the idea of a spoiler? And just have ranked choice voting. Well, now they're going to see, oh, shit, maybe that makes sense. So, yes, just do ranked choice voting, and we won't, won't even have to worry about this dipshit. But there is going to be a slight concern now, because if he runs and Kasich doesn't, then, yeah, maybe 2% of the vote goes from sh- away from whatever Democrat to Howard Schultz, and that could be an issue. So, by the way, oh, final thing about Howard Schultz. In that 60 Minutes interview... Here's one of the things he said. He says, he, oh, I spent a lot of time worrying about poverty and health care. He's like, he's one of these guys who's like, oh, I like black people and gay people, so I'm not an evil bigot. But then in the next sentence, he's also like, and we need to totally get rid of this national debt, which, by the way, is impossible and shows that he doesn't really know how the national debt works. And he's, um, he pretends like he knows economics, but he doesn't, and he's a deficit scold. But he says this, quote, what the Democrats are proposing is something that is as false as the wall, and that is free health care for all which the country cannot afford. Strike one, you're out. Ain't no two and three, bitch. Strike one, you're out. Why? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Every developed country has one version or another of a single-payer system, a free healthcare system, tax-funded healthcare system, free at the point of service. And you're saying, oh, we can't afford it. We can't afford not to have it. Medicare for all would cost, uh, even according to the right-wing Libertarian uh, Mercatus Institute, Medicare for all costs $32 trillion um, over the next 10 years. If we keep our system the same as it is now, it's $34 trillion. You save $2 trillion when you move to Medicare for all. We can't afford not to do it, dipshit. And that's even a right-wing study, a left-wing study, or not even a left-wing study, a more objective study found that Medicare for all saves $5 trillion over 10 years. So come the fuck on, man. Can't say shit like that. I mean, look at that. Democrats are proposing something as false as the wall. Universal health care, which every other developed country has, and it works wonderfully in. This is the bullshit. Both sides, both sides are equally extreme. I mean, these guys want people to go to college, and these guys want to kick out Mexicans. Equally extreme. What are you going to say? Equally extreme. Or perhaps you're a fucking idiot, and you're massively out of touch, and you need to go mind your business and swim in your own giant pool of cash. Fucking Howard Schultz. Fuck out of here, bitch. Howard Schultz. Asshole. Fuck you. Okay. Next. All right. Arizona time. Arizona time, Arizona time. I have a video for you. You guys will not be able to hear it on the live show. We'll peep it later on YouTube. So I have another video for you from the border. This is from Arizona in an area that has a wall. 
So last time we showed a video like this, it looked to me more like a fence than a wall in a different part of, was it New Mexico last time, or was it also Arizona last time? I don't remember. But we showed a video last time. It's at night. you got the night vision going, and you see these uh, undocumented immigrants get off of a bus and just cross into the U.S., and they go right through the fence, okay? But again, I said, it looks like a fence to me. The article described it as a wall. It looked like a fence. It looked kind of short to me, okay? Well, here we have, this one's not up in the air. This is a wall. So there are parts of the southern border, people don't know this, there are parts of the southern border that have a wall already. Areas where it was high traffic or whatever, they decided, it may have been at the state level, okay, we're going to build our own wall, and that's that. Well, <laughs> look at what happened here, because this is hilarious. They're just climbing over the wall, by the way. That's it. There's a whole bunch of them, and they're just climbing over the wall, and this is nothing. <laughs> this is so easy. <laughs> Come on, man. What are you doing? This is so easy. What are you doing? Okay, there we go. I mean... Come on, man. <laughs> uh, see, the, you know, I've spoken about this before, but there are two camps on the left, okay? One camp says, I'm against the wall because it's immoral. I think walls are immoral, and I think um, it's a giant monument to white supremacy, and for that reason it shouldn't be built. That's one camp on the left. Then there's another camp on the left, and this camp says, well, you know, I'm in favor of the idea of having a border. I'm not in favor of open borders completely. I'm in favor of having a liberal, leftist, you know, tolerant approach to having an immigration system that makes sense, that's fair-minded. But, yeah, we can have borders. And it's not that the wall is immoral or racist. It's that it's just ineffective. It's like a silly, outdated, antiquated, primitive idea a medieval idea, as a Colorado a Democratic senator said. And it's just like, why? Why are you, like, this is your big thing? Like, your big thing is this goofy idea that's just not even, like, it's so easy. It's like, the idea that human beings can't figure out how to get around a wall, we're human beings. Obviously, we can figure out how to get over it, how to get under it, how to get around it. Like, and most undocumented immigrants who come in this country fly in and just stay too long. They overstay their visas. So, it's like, it's a solution in search of a problem. Like, yeah, we'll do this thing that's not going to fix the problem, even though we're going to say it's going to fix the problem, and it's not even going to come close to fixing the problem, but it's a symbolic thing that we now want, and I'm just going to say that that's the answer. Well, I mean, what do you want me to tell you? That's a real video of people going to an area where there's a border wall and just casually getting over it using this thing called a ladder. So, it, listen, to me what this shows is, it is, it's not up in the air, it's not a matter of opinion, it just objectively doesn't work. So even if you're one of these people who are super hardline and right-wing on, on immigration, okay, I mean, in all seriousness, we know the Democrats in many respects agree with Republicans. I think one of those areas, honestly, is the border. And they've said for, for a while now, oh, it's not that we're against a wall, it's that we want a smart wall. So what that means is fucking drone detection systems and more border security agents. Like, this is what the Democrats are in favor of. So you want border security? Okay. Democratic Party welcomes you with open arms. And many people on the left 
don't agree with that and are mad at the Democrats. In the same way that people on the left are mad at Democrats for, hey, why are you doing Wall Street's bidding? You know, why are you selling out your base? There are many people on the left-wing base who say the Democrats sell us out on the border. And they're too hawkish on the border. And, I mean, it, if you look at their proposals, they are pretty – they are in favor of increasing border security. So I don't see what the problem is. They're just saying that your idea of doing it, building a wall, is just silly and useless and doesn't work. And, I'm, I mean, when you see videos like this, it's hard to disagree with that. I mean, it seems like a pretty easy fucking thing to get over a wall or under a wall or around a wall. And the idea that it's like, oh, this is the fucking thing that'll work. It's symbolic garbage, man. Come on. Trump used this issue to demagogue because his base loves it the most and it got him in power. And now he's stuck in a corner and he feels like he's got to do something about it. But I don't know. When I see a video like that, I go, oh, your vanity project is as silly as I thought it was. Okay, next. All right, we're going to end with two... Actually, yeah, two really disturbing stories and one that talks directly to the people impacted by the government shutdown. Be prepared to be very annoyed. Okay, here we go. This next story pissed me off more than I can express. This is from NBC. The superintendent of an Indiana school district was arrested and faces fraud charges for allegedly using her son's name to help a sick student receive medical treatment. Casey Smitherman, the superintendent of Elwood Community School Corporation, was charged with insurance fraud, identity deception, insurance application fraud, and official misconduct court documents show. Police in Elwood, Indiana, said they received a tip that Smitherman took a 15-year-old student to urgent care on January 9th after the teenager missed school because he had a sore throat, according to a probable cause affidavit. She was arrested, okay, had to pay $500 to be released, and she'll either have to pay another fine or do community service. So there's this kid. He was sick. You know, this um, adult from the school was concerned, found out he was sick, he didn't have insurance. He couldn't get medicine. She took him to one doctor's office. She was honest and upfront and said, no, it's not my son, but a sick kid from the school, and I, don't, I hope nothing's seriously wrong. Can you please do a checkup? And, um, you know, he needs care. He needs attention. And the response from the first doctor's office was, no, he's not your son. Can't be used under your insurance. We can't help you. Wow, okay. So she goes to another doctor. And what does she do? What any moral person would do. And she says, oh, this is my son. Um, He's sick. Can you help him? Well, sure we can. Go through all this, this, and that. Here's the medicine you need. You need some fucking, you know, whatever it is. Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Why am I blanking on this? This is a really brain farty moment. Um, Penicillin? No. God damn it. How do you get rid of... Drugs for bacterial diseases. Why am I blanking on this? Antibiotic, that's the word I'm looking for. Jesus Christ, how stupid am I? Okay, so give them some antibiotics. Um, 
she goes and fills the prescription, does it, you know, as under her son's name, gives him the medicine, he gets better, but somebody finds out somehow, and then boom. She's charged with all these fucking, I mean, look at this laundry list of shit. You'd think she, like, was part of a gang and doing fucking drive-bys or something. Insurance fraud, identity deception, insurance application fraud, and official misconduct. Now, the part of this story that pissed me off more than anything else, I think, is that the school that she works at, they had to release a statement on this. And they basically said something along the lines of, hey, listen, we understand why she did it. She, for all the right reasons, she did it. But we talked to her, and she knows that what she did was wrong. Now, they didn't fire her, which to their credit, I'm happy they didn't fire her. But the fact that they released a statement, and in the statement they said, like, she knows what she did was wrong, no, that's not true. What she did is not wrong. What she did is 100% morally correct. It is the right thing to do. In fact, when you take, like, philosophy 101 classes in, um, in college, one of the first, like, moral conundrums that they give you is, well, what would you do if a family member is dying and you can't afford the, the drugs, the, the medicine to make them better? What's the moral thing to do? Is the, is the proper thing to do, the correct thing to do, is it to let your loved one die because you have to follow the laws, you know, and, and following the law is more important than preserving the life of a loved one, or is the moral thing to do Go and steal the medicine to make sure that your loved one survives. And, you know, I mean, I'm going deep in the memory bank here, but I'm relatively certain, like, the entire class was like, well, obviously you go steal the medicine. Why? Because they're not fucking idiots. Laws should only be laws insofar as it makes sense that they're laws. Now, I understand it's fair to make a, hey, that's a slippery slope, and that'll lead to maybe some right-wingers saying, I don't agree with your ban on people having fucking Gatling guns. Okay, okay, fair enough. There are instances where somebody's interpretation of what should and shouldn't be a law, their meter is so off that they're just wrong in their interpretation. That's a fair enough point, and I agree with that. However, there are some things where there are moral red lines, where you say anybody who's being reasonable about this is going to agree. You don't let this poor kid who's sick remain sick when you can fix it. You have the power to fix it. You have the authority to fix it. And it just requires doing something like getting fucking medicine under your son's name. So did she technically commit fraud? Yes. But guess what? This is reason number 14,722 why the system that we need to have is Medicare for all. I mean, come the fuck on, man. This stuff is not rocket science. You know what happens under a Medicare for all system? You get sick and then you get help. That's the end of the story. That's it. I'm done. Wrap it up. Go home. What are we doing here? That's it. End of story. You're sick. You go to the doctor. You get help. You go get your medication. Everything is free at the point of service. You want to know why? Our tax money, instead of funding bombing fucking brown babies overseas for no goddamn reason, instead of funding research and development for ExxonMobil, instead of funding $80 billion in quantitative easing to Wall Street to big banks, and they continue to screw us, by the way, your money would go towards shit that would help you and regular folks. Ooh, crazy. It's what every other developed country does, but we don't do it. But see, the thing that drives me crazy is how we're in our own bubble in the United States. The fact that that school felt like we need to release a statement, and in that statement we're going to say, she knows she was wrong for what she did, that shows we still got so much fucking work to do. Because who are you appeasing when you say that? I got news for you. The only people you're appeasing, for-profit health insurance companies. That's it. And the drug companies. That's it. 
Everybody else is like, no, don't say you were wrong. You weren't wrong. The kid needed medicine. He got the kid medicine. You're a fucking hero. Don't say she's wrong. You're going to throw her under the bus like that? Are you fucking kidding me? She was right. You should, the school should release a statement. This is a classic moral conundrum that's discussed in philosophy class, and we think she came to the right conclusion. We support Medicare for all. Nobody should have to be sick and not get medicine in the United States of America because they can't afford it. Why are we even having this conversation? Shame on the drug companies. Shame on the for-profit health insurance companies. It's time we stand up to these motherfuckers. These laws shouldn't exist. These rules shouldn't exist. You shouldn't have to go fucking bankrupt because you're sick. This stuff is fucking common sense, man. Stand up for what's right. Let's fight back against us. Let's get Medicare for all. We're done fucking around. She has a criminal record now because she helped a sick kid. What kind of a sick fucking indictment is that on our country? Okay. One more that's going to make you sad, made me sad. So I have to share the story with you of a little boy named Ethan Goldner. Take a look at this. Quote, he asked me if he's going to die said dad of 11-year-old whose insurance company denied insulin. So his health insurance company, here's what happened. His health insurance company, which, by the way, I used to be part of the same company. I can can, um, verify that they're not the greatest company. It's Emblem Health, by the way. Uh, So his insurance company uh, made a deal with a different insulin maker, okay? And as a result of that deal that they made with the the other insulin maker, a new insulin maker, they cut their prices, okay, but, but he was effectively forced to use this new product instead of the old one. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is he's a type 1 diabetic, and apparently this medicine, for whatever reason, it works, but it works better with type 2 diabetics, not type 1 diabetics. In other words, the difference is there are certain kinds of diabetes that can be um, impacted by healthy diet and exercise, but there's other types of diabetes that cannot. Like, he's been a diabetic since he was 2 years old. So it has nothing to do with his diet or his exercise. It's just that he just has diabetes. Okay, so there's a difference there. So this insulin, for whatever reason, it doesn't work well on type 1 diabetics, but the insurance company didn't know or didn't care and said this is the only deal we have is with this one insulin maker, so now you have to take this. So guess what? It wasn't working. So quoting from the article here, they say, for a week, the 11-year-old experienced vision loss, nausea, dizzy, dizziness, weakness, and extremely high blood sugar. His body was rejecting the new insulin. So what happened is the parents start panicking. They pick up the phone. They call the insurance company. They say, listen, this, we, this can't stand. We've got to appeal this decision. He has to go back on the other insulin. The other insulin was more of a brand name or something like that, better for type 1 diabetes, never had a problem on the old insulin. They slapped it down. They said, no. We only have a deal with this, new, um, with this new company for this insulin, so it's this. This is your only option. Kids still, all these health problems start popping up. The kid starts asking, am I going to die? they got to pick up the phone, call again, stop at nothing. They're losing sleep. They're calling all day and night. They call, finally. And I think, I don't know if this is 100% accurate, but it appears like it based on all the stories. As soon as the media gets involved, then the insurance company's like, oh, it's totally, bro. You want to use the old insulin? No problem at all, bro. And then they approve it. So they had slapped it down, and then they approved it. So after 11 days, I guess, he gets his, 
his new uh, medicine back, and they, they reverse uh, the decision. But look at the system that we have in this country. First of all, I need everybody to understand how radical our system is in a negative way. Because did you know that in most developed countries, in fact, it might be all developed countries, they literally don't allow for drug advertisements. If you notice on TV in the U.S., you'll see fucking advertisements for even cancer medication. Like, oh, if you have this problem, you got these side effects, this is the cancer medication, take this for diabetes, take this for cancer, take this for all these different... So drug companies are allowed to advertise for medicine. Now, that seems like a weird thing, right? Because when you get sick and you go to the doctor and you get help and they prescribe you something, nobody like shops. It's just like, okay, I'm sick. I need help. Give me the stuff that will make me feel better. The idea that like, like I'm going to give you options as to which thing you want. And this isn't a weird attempt to make money off your misery and your sickness and your disease. It's like other developed countries have gone, mm, that seems really sketchy and kind of weird to try to profit off of somebody's sickness and advertise for drugs. But we're so used to it in this country. Nobody even fucking blinks. So that's one issue shows how fucking out of whack our moral priorities are and how fucked up our system is. But then this is the hardcore reality on the ground, is that some insurance companies, oh, hey, listen, bro, what you want me to tell you? I only cover this doctor and this doctor and this hospital in your network. So let's say you went to vacation, uh, you went on vacation to Florida and you get sick and you go to a hospital in Florida. Sorry, that's not covered in our network. So now your $72,000 hospital bill, you're going to have to pay for that out of pocket. This is real-life shit that happens in the United States. Oh, sorry, we're your health insurance company, and your kid needs this kind of insulin to stay alive. Well, we didn't make a deal with that insulin company. We made a deal with this other insulin company, which is not going to work for your kid, but your kid has no other choice, so sorry, you're going to have to take that. This is what happens in this country. Now, how many stories like this don't make it to the media, don't become national news, don't get discussed on shows like this? You want to know how many? Thousands. I'm one dude with a YouTube show. I can't, all the I'm sure if we try to do a story, uh, try to do a show where we cover stories like this all day, we could easily do it. You got to dig to all different corners and look in the fucking Tuscaloosa Gazette and fucking random, but this shit happens all across the country on a regular basis. Some of it gets no media attention at all. Some of it only gets from small outlets. Everybody acts like, oh, sure, it's what it is. Anyway, let's cover it in CNN. What's Kim Kardashian and Kanye West doing? <laughs> Fuck you, cover real shit. And cover it from the right perspective. The right perspective is holding people in power accountable. You know who's powerful? Insurance companies. You know who's powerful? Pharmaceutical companies. So we have to, we have to fight back against them so that we have a system that's not morally abhorrent. I mean, what a joke this is, man. This kid could have died. He could have died because of a drug company that made a new fucking deal because they wanted to save a dime. Get the fuck out of here. Medicare for all right now. Can't wait any longer. Medicare for all right this second. 32,000 to 45,000 people die every year in this country because they don't have access to basic health care. And we're sitting around talking about anything else. We need to fix this and we need to fix it now. Stories like this drive me crazy. And actually, you know what? It's not even fair to put it like that. Stories like this prove our system is crazy. And perhaps we're the only sane ones on the fucking planet looking at it and going, we got to do something about this. But the system is geared to make you not do anything about it. And that's a problem. Okay.
final story of the day. Okay. Believe it or not, CNN will be getting some credit in this next segment. What? What? It's happening. So I'm going to do something rare here and give CNN credit for something. Um, They decided to talk to people who were directly impacted by the government shutdown, and they gave their experience and what's been going on in their lives, and this is really telling, and this is is a great job. They should do a lot more of this. Take a look. Friday, our Randy Kay sat down with five federal workers, one from the EPA, two from the Bureau of Prisons, one from the TSA, and one from uh, an air traffic controller. Four are working without pay. One is furloughed. Two are Democrats, one Republican, and two are independents. Here's their report. How many of you are running out of money? Raise your hand. All of you. Mara Perlman's son needs medication for ADHD. I don't know how I'm going to pay the 250 a month. For his medication. My husband and I have put ourselves on a macaroni and cheese and a grilled cheese sandwich diet, so therefore the kids can eat. Tom Ruiz is picking up extra cash playing guitar at a coffee shop, but that may not be enough to afford his regular MRIs for MS. Those three added up to out-of-pocket costs, $550. That's a, and that's with insurance, but I have to give them. I have to make sure that this disease is held in check. Kyle Coates, a divorced dad, may have to skip the 300-mile drive every other week to see his daughter. I wouldn't have the gas money. As of today, Kyle is broke. You ran out of money today. Today. What are you going to do? I absolutely did. I had like $20 left in my bank account, so I called my parents, and they're going to put in $300 for me today. So, When you know you have zero income, but there is no end in sight, that's what becomes the problem. And when a top economic advisor in the Trump administration suggested this is a paid vacation, this furloughed worker was furious. And that's, that's what really boiled my blood. But you've got to understand the psychological uh, impacts of this. Being at home, we feel undervalued, we're you know, unappreciated, and that results in just low morale, of course. Kyle, do you think that President Trump can relate to the situation that you're in? A billionaire relate to a guy that's uh, living paycheck to paycheck? I don't think so. I don't. I don't think anybody in Congress could relate. As a Trump voter, you don't agree 100 percent with what he's doing. I don't agree 100 percent. I don't believe in holding anybody's paycheck hostage. Democrat, Republican, I don't care who you are. What about Speaker Pelosi? Do you think she can relate to the position that you all are in? No, and honestly, I don't think she cares. Every interview she does, and she's got this smirk on her face like she's winning. She's not. Who do you blame for the position that you're in? Congress as a whole. Um, I would love to really point my finger a lot right now to Mitch McConnell, who refuses to allow a vote in the Senate. I blame the entire leadership. Uh, As a leader, you don't get a chance to shift the blame. You have to take responsibility, period. You did vote for Donald Trump. I mean, do you feel betrayed by this? I definitely feel betrayed by him. You know, he he talked about, you know, supporting law enforcement. I'm a federal law enforcement officer not receiving pay. How's that supporting law enforcement officers? You know, so I I blame him. I I blame the Republican Party. I blame the Democrat Party. You know, one of the hard parts about it is none of us are asking for handouts. 
We're just asking for our paycheck. Randy K, CNN, Dallas. Man, that was a powerful segment. That was a powerful segment. Um, <clears throat> Bernie 2020, that's all I can say. I mean, when all of them seem to have the same sentiment of like, fuck, fuck both of them. Fuck the Democrats, fuck the Republicans. You know, paying workers is not political. We're not asking for a handout. We're just asking for our fucking paycheck. Like, holy shit. I mean, one of them said mac and cheese and grilled cheese diet so that the kids could eat. Oh, my God. Um, another one said he can't afford his MS drugs, $500 a month or something like that, 550 Another one said he can't afford the gas money to see his daughter. daughter. I mean, this is real people, real problems. They're working people. But, hey, we've talked about it on this show. I know they don't in, in corporate media usually. And I know Donald Trump has no clue about this shit, but 76% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. So, you know, with, for, with this shutdown, these government workers, they can't fucking afford this shit. Man, the system is so broken, dude. The system is so broken. We need to, we need to realize that you can't fuck with people's pay. You just can't. These people depend on that. Uh, now, uh, you know, it's a recurring thing now, the government shutdowns. It just keeps, it, there didn't used to be them, and then, I don't know when they started, but it happened like once or twice under Obama, now like twice under Trump, right? And by the way, the deal that they just came to, it only funds the government for like two weeks or something like that. It's almost like they just funded it, he's going to give the State of the Union, and then we're going to go right back to a fucking shutdown. So what the fuck? We're, we're in a permanent state of disarray. And uh, it's because of hyper-partisanship and corruption. And I don't see much of a light at the end of the tunnel, to be honest with you, you know? And uh, who are the victims in all this? As usual, it's working people. Okay. That's the show, ladies and gentlemen. Love y'all. I'll talk to you soon. I think we'll have a Kylan Corn tomorrow. Not sure. Got to talk to Corn. But anyway, everybody enjoy the rest of your day, and I'll talk to you soon. I'm Outskies. Peace.